before we open the scriptures, just take a moment with that image. There is a king seated here among us. And that king is the king above all kings. Oh, Lord, give us eyes to see you. And move our hearts to respond to you in the way that is worthy of you. To you this morning, our King, we say yes. And to you this morning, our King, we look in this world where so many raise themselves up as kings insisting upon our allegiance. We give our hearts afresh this morning to you. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, beloved Covenant family. It's such a joy to be able to be with you all. Good morning to our online audience. We're so glad you're here. Kiddos, it is so good to see you. I love seeing your faces. Some are already dismissed and heading back there. But if you haven't left yet, you are dismissed to go now. Before you go, you might want to check out my cool socks. Check them out. Look at that. Glow in the dark, stars, planets, and constellations. Pretty impressive. It is cool, isn't it? But you wish you had some like that. All right, well, this morning we begin a new sermon series that I am really excited about. It's going to take us from now all the way through to the end of May. And during those four months or so, we're going to be walking our way through the book of Philippians. And this is a book that I think we will discover is incredibly relevant to where we find ourselves right now. Let me just give you some examples. First of all, it was written by Paul when he was in quarantine. He was separated from his dear friends in Philippi. He was trying to plan a trip and figure out how to get there and see them. And he was prevented from doing that again and again and kept wondering when he'd be able to see them face to face. That's a lot like our circumstance, isn't it? I mean, it, yeah, it's true that he was actually in prison, probably in Rome, rather than just in quarantine. But the circumstances are the same. Second, Paul writes to the church about a number of themes that I think really speak to some of our circumstances. One of the things that he explores is how to keep a faith perspective in difficult circumstances. How do you live with joy and peace and contentment when things just are really hard? He has a lot to say about love and how love should be a shaping force in every part of our life together as a church, not only in our worship, but also in our relationships with each other. Love should be at the center of our understanding of discipleship, and love should define everything about our mission to the world. He has a fair amount to say about how we should stick together as a church and be one in spirit and in purpose in a time when different pressures outside the church and when different opinions inside the church are conspiring to push people apart. He addresses the challenges of sharing our faith in a culture that may not be the least bit interested in hearing what we have to share. And part of what he explores is how a church that has strong, grounded biblical beliefs can engage the world in a loving way without compromise and without losing its prophetic voice. 
Any of that seem relevant to you? I think all of that speaks with relevance to our situation. Well, before we pray and, and open ourselves up to this study, I just need to acknowledge that I am sure that not one of you heard a word I just said because of this absolutely stunning backdrop behind me. Isn't this amazing? I love this. And I love what it captures, this picture of the, the kingdom of heaven breaking into this realm in which we live. There's so many really cool symbolic expressions of this. The darkness below, this absolute glory above, the, the, the ladder that implies access both directions. And then here we are, or here our fellow citizens are. People like this couple over here, completely absorbed in their conversation, not even noticing. This woman seems to have her head tilted back, and I wonder if she's just caught a glimpse of what is breaking in. And then look at this man, not even noticing what's over his head, but really intent on this empty seat next to him, which just so happens to be right at the base of the, stair of the stairs to heaven or from heaven. I wonder who he's waiting to encounter. And then look how, whether or not they are even aware of it, look how the people on the platform have been touched by some of these glimpses of glory that have descended from the kingdom on high. I love it. Well, with that as our backdrop, pray with me. Lord, as we immerse ourselves in this study, in, in this portion of scripture, we ask that you would use your word to shape us by your spirit, to shape our way of relating to you, our way of relating to one another, and to shape the way we relate to the world. We pray this, Jesus, in your name, because you are the king. Amen. All right, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Philippians, chapter 1, verse 1. Here's how it begins in the New Living Translation. This letter is from Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. I'm writing to all of God's holy people in Philippi who belong to Christ Jesus, including the church leaders and the deacons. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. So in these opening verses, we are told that the letter we're about to read was written by Paul, who was one of the very earliest converts from Judaism to Christianity right after the, ministry, the earthly ministry of Jesus came to an end. He and his ministry companion, a young man that he's mentoring named Timothy, write to a group of believers who have become very dear to both of them. These believers are located in a city in eastern Greece, and they, uh, they are people who, uh, that... Paul and Timothy carry around on their hearts. The reason is because of the relationship they have formed in the years before this letter was written. This is a city that Paul visited at least two other times. The first time was on Paul's second great missionary journey, sometime around the year 50. After being directed by God's Spirit to turn towards Europe, Paul arrived in Europe with Timothy, with Silas, and with Luke, and as Luke records in Acts chapter 16, verse 12, from there we travel to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia in eastern Greece, and we stayed there several days. I'd like to encourage you to take some time at some point during this week to just read through 
that account in uh, Acts chapter 16 of that first visit. Uh, this is a setting of, of several memorable stories that Paul brought back with him from his great missionary journeys, one of which will be familiar to you at least. That's the story of Paul and Silas's miraculous escape from prison. That happened in Philippi. Well, after this first visit, Paul and some of his team went on to Thessalonica and Athens and Corinth, further in Greece, and then they returned by way of sea to Jerusalem. But then on his third missionary journey, sometime around 55 or 56, Paul returned to Philippi, and you can read about that brief visit in Acts chapter 20, the first six verses. So here's one really interesting little detail. I love this. If you take a close look at the use of the words they and we in these two passages, in Acts 16 and in Acts 20, you discover that Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, actually stays on in Philippi when Paul, Silas, and Timothy leave at the end of their first visit and head on to other parts of Greece. And then when Paul passes back through the region a second time, five or six years later, Luke joins back up with Paul's team and he leaves Philippi with them at the end of that visit. Isn't that fascinating? I love that just it's a great reminder that these are not made up stories. These are real tales about real people. So here's a map that shows Philippi in the top middle, right on the Aegean Sea in the eastern extremity of Greece. Jerusalem is in the bottom right-hand corner of this map, and Rome is in the upper left-hand corner. The, um, the city of Philippi was a pretty substantial city, and it was located right along the Via Ignatia, which was the primary Roman road that joined Italy uh, and the east with Asia Minor, and, or excuse me, in the west with Asia Minor in the east. You may remember in the passage that I just read from Acts chapter 16, verse 12, that Luke mentions that Philippi is a Roman colony. Well, it turns out that is an understatement. Have you ever been to Holland, Michigan? Or Koreatown in Chicago or Chinatown in San Francisco or Little Italy in Boston? where you feel as though you walk into an American city and suddenly you are beamed into another part of the world? Well, Philippi was not only a Roman colony, it was little Rome. Everything about it was influenced far more by Rome, which was a thousand miles away to the west, than it was by the Greek world that immediately was outside of its walls on every side. The city was founded by Philip, the very Greek father of Alexander the Great, all the way back in the 300s BC. But in 42 BC, Mark Antony caught up with Brutus and Cassius, the murderers of Julius Caesar, if you know your Shakespeare or your Roman history, in the plains outside of Philippi, and he defeated them. And then after that battle, before he left, Mark Antony left behind some of his Roman veterans, and he told them to turn the city into a Roman colony. And they sure took his orders seriously. The Philippi that Paul walked into was laid out with the same city plan as the city of Rome. Most of the buildings were built with Roman style rather than Greek style architecture. Those who ran the city modeled the city's constitution after the constitution of Rome. And the, city, the citizens of the city not only wore Roman clothing and spoke the Roman language, which was Latin, 
but they also were actually considered official Roman citizens. A quick look at the temples in the, the city showed that they worshiped Roman gods in the city and not the Greek gods. And Philippi had a really strong imperial cult, which was a whole religious system that centered on the idea that the Roman emperor was a divine being. And it, was, it came complete with its own priesthood and its own temples. I think it's really interesting to see that even 2,000 years ago, it was tempting to blur allegiance to a heavenly kingdom with allegiance to an earthly kingdom. Well, in this letter to the Philippians, written about five years after this second visit, Paul picks up on this unique little Rome distinctive of the city of Philippi, and he makes that the central metaphor of this letter that he writes. He says, just like you live in Greece and are surrounded by Greek culture, but you're actually citizens of Rome and have been shaped in every way by your citizenship in that other realm, in the exact same way you are called to live your life here in this world as faithful citizens of that other realm that you belong to. God intends that every part of your life here, your outlook, your character, your way of life, would be shaped by your citizenship there in that other realm. Paul spells out this connection in two specific passages. The first is Philippians 1.27, which says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Unfortunately, a key word here gets lost in translation. The Greek actually says, live as citizens here who reflect the good news about Christ. Paul spells out the connection even more in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 where he says, our citizenship is in heaven. You know this, but it is really challenging to be a citizen of one realm, but living in another very different one, with different food and different language and different customs. I still remember on my trip around the world when I was in college, after traveling for most of the summer, arriving in Tokyo, and trying to use the, the, the year of Japanese that I had, not to great effect, trying to get us around in the subways and, and trying to order off of the menus, you can imagine how thrilled I was when we walked around a corner and there in front of us were the two golden arches. And spelled out in, in the Japanese language, the, the, the katakana language, it said, makudunarudos. And so we, went, we, we caved in, we went running inside the restaurant, and each of us ordered a bigumaku. How sweet to have a taste of that other realm. Well, we, before we go any further, I just want to ask you a question. I would love it if you would pick up your phone right now and, and send me a text in answer to this question. As Christians, Paul tells us that this world is not our home. We are citizens of another realm so as you think about your experience of belonging to another realm, but living in this one, what have you found is most difficult about that? We're going to put a number up on this screen, and I'd love it if you just text an answer to the question, what is the hardest thing about living as a Christian in a non-Christian world? Where do you most feel the tension? As we walk through this sermon series, where would you most appreciate some help or some perspective? So over the next few minutes, text us, text us and answer that question. So while you're thinking about that, let me just take a few minutes to give you a preview of what's ahead for us. 
Here's a quick overview of the primary themes of the book of Philippians. You don't need to write this down or even try to remember it at this point. I really just want to orient you uh, to the feast that is in front of us. These are some of the themes that we'll be exploring as we walk through this book. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul will talk about the one defining center of the kingdom of God. And that is Jesus, the king of the realm. I'm sure you'll recognize the wonderful hymn-like section that's right in the center of this letter, which culminates with these awesome and moving words. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 9, Therefore God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is the defining center of the kingdom and his participation in our lives and our participation in his kingdom define the Christian life. Jesus introduced the kingdom when he stepped into this world. He will consummate the kingdom when he returns to this world. So for each of us, for all of us together, there are two dimensions of kingdom life, this life and the life to come. Being part of the kingdom of heaven involves being, being part of three ongoing movements of God, three ongoing works of the spirit of God that Paul describes in the first chapter of this letter. This three essential movements of the kingdom coming together in love, growing together up in maturity and going out in witness. The rest of the letter, in many respects, is Paul's elaboration on what it means in really practical terms to live as a citizen of that realm in this world. He unfolds for us what I call the 10 hallmark virtues of the kingdom. These are the spirit-formed, Christ-like virtues that will characterize us more and more as we give ourselves over to the Spirit's work as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. These include love and unity, humility, joy, peace, generosity, contentment, living like Christ, living for Christ. And the one life purpose of every kingdom, kingdom subject is to bring glory to God. Paul wraps up his letter by, by restating a theme that runs through it and that we hear again and again. The ultimate goal of the Christian life is not to live a life that pleases us, but to live a life that pleases God. We exist because of him, we exist for him, and the one shared purpose that we have as his kingdom subjects is to bring glory to God. That is to, to make God manifest in this world through our life and our service of him. So you've had a chance to think about my earlier question. Let me just pull up some of your answers. Unfortunately, we won't get a chance to read all of these, but let me read some. And even if you haven't sent one in yet, please do that. This will help shape our conversation in the sermon series ahead. Uh, so some of what makes it difficult uh, to live as a citizen, uh, to live in this world, but as a citizen of another realm, other Christians peddling fear and hatred instead of love and grace. Discernment related to when to bend, to reach others, and when to say this cannot bend, and how to do that well. My passion for my earthly citizenship is often greater than my passion for the heavenly kingdom. How can I best correct this? Oh, wow, these are so insightful. 
attempting to converse with fellow image bearers whose perspective of me is rooted in differences of political opinion, capitulating to social norms for the sake of fitting in. The hardest thing is learning to accept rejection, being labeled and misunderstood, and humbly receiving persecution in the name of Christ. How enticing this world can be. It's not that bad to watch this, to do that, to say this, and so on. Wow, thank you for sharing these. These are incredibly insightful and will be really important in helping to shape uh, the discussion that we have going forward. Okay, before we go on, I just want to pause here and ask if each of us would commit to doing two things as we begin this sermon series. First of all, would you please commit to reading through the whole book of Philippians at one sitting at least once this week? Actually, I would love it if you would do it once a day this week. Just read through the whole letter. It only takes 15 minutes to read this whole book from the beginning to the end. For those of you who are still part of the old print world, that is less time than the average person takes to read the morning newspaper. And if you are part of the new electronic world, that is less time than the average person spends taking and editing a selfie to post on social media. True facts, it's been measured. So read it in several different translations, read it out loud, listen to it in an audio version, Take a selfie of yourself reading Philippians and post it on our Facebook post. Just listen to it. Let it soak in and let God to begin to speak to you through it. So first thing, read through Philippians in one sitting, at least once this week and hopefully every day. Secondly, would you please, as you're doing that, listen for the, the nudging of the Spirit of God. And would you please pick, pick at least one verse that speaks to you and try to commit that to memory. Write it out in longhand a dozen times. Repeat it out loud a dozen times. Put it to a tune and sing it. Take a selfie video of you mangling, trying to memorize it, and post it on our Facebook page. And then, once you have that passage memorized, then shift it over from your scripture memory part of your devotional time to the prayer part of your devotional time. And let that begin to shape your prayer for yourself and for our church family and for those that you love. All right, for the last few minutes of our time this morning, I just want to take one more look at the opening two verses, and I just want to focus on a single idea that I think is really important. So let me ask you, as we, as we look back at that passage, what is the one thing that defines you as a person more than anything else? What's the one thing that defines you as a person more than anything else? Maybe your job? your interests, your family, your hometown. Maybe it's the group of friends that you hang out with or would like to hang out with. Maybe it's the school you went to, what you're good at, what you have accomplished in life. If that was the way that Paul thought about himself and about his friends in Philippi, then his letter might have started out sounding like this. This letter is from Paul, who graduated magna cum laude from the school of Gamaliel in Jerusalem, and who has more than a dozen published works translated into numerous different languages and read all around the world, and who has planted multiple churches in four countries on two continents. And his protege, Timothy, himself an accomplished spiritual leader, I'm writing to the church at Philippi, which is full of capable and gifted leaders, some of whom are known throughout the region for their exceptional business practices, such as the production and dye of fine cloth, 
and others who have accomplished significant achievements in their respective fields. But that's not how he writes it, is it? Listen again to how it begins. This letter is from Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. And I'm writing to all of God's holy people in Philippi who belong to Christ Jesus, including the church leaders and deacons. Paul and Timothy say, the most important thing that you can know about us is whose we are. We belong to Jesus, and that defines who we are. We are his slaves. And you in the church in Philippi, the most important thing that can be said about you, that can be known about you, is the same thing. Whose you are. You are God's holy people. You belong to him. Whose are you? And how does that define who you are? At the center of this book stands this towering figure at whose name the whole of human existence will one day bow. To what extent does that same towering figure stand at the center of your life? And to what extent is your life a picture of bowing before him? I've been thinking a lot about this idea in the last several months. Let me just use an analogy that I think might be really helpful for us as we think about this dimension of our own lives. If I were to ask you to tell me the most important thing that we could know about the earth, what would it be? I'm guessing some of you might point to the atmosphere, which is part of what allows us, obviously, to breathe. You might look at the balance of land and water that allows us uh, to have places to live and then ways that we can travel and gain access to other parts. You might describe the beauty of the planet and, and how that brings meaning to our lives. Or maybe it's incredible resources that have been tucked into this world that let us create things that facilitate life here on this earth. We would almost automatically, in answer to that question, think of the earth by itself, separately, independently, as a separate entity. But the most important thing about the earth isn't something earthy at all. The most important thing about the earth is the huge ball of hydrogen and helium that is 93 million miles away that holds us in its gravitational pull. Our dependent relationship upon the sun determines the temperature of the planet and shapes the seasons on this planet and produces and nourishes the plant life on this planet and so much more. The most important thing about the earth is the sun without which there could be no life on this planet, let alone a meaningful life. In the same way, if I am a follower of Christ, the most important thing about me isn't something about me at all. It is my relationship to the Son, to the Son of God. Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. Jesus Christ has made me his own. What would you say is the defining reality of your life? If I were to ask your kids that question, or your parents, what would they say? What about your friends at school or your coworkers at work? your neighbors who live on either side of you, what would they say is the defining reality of your life? 
Everything Paul says in the rest of this letter spills out of this basic idea that Jesus occupies the center and we rightly make sense of ourselves and our lives only in light of our relationship to him. So how would you characterize your relationship with Christ? Does it define you? Do you live your whole life in the shape of a bow? Is your whole life a declaration that Jesus Christ is Lord? Obviously, not any of us could say that that's true of us completely. And that's actually one of the really encouraging aspects of this letter. Again and again, repeated throughout this book, you can see it found in the phrase more and more in chapter 1, verse 9. You can see it found in the phrase, not that I've already attained all of this, but I press on toward the goal. In 3, verse 12, Paul wants us to see that something can be true of us in a yes or no sense and also true of us in a more or less sense. What Paul calls us to is a life that says, yes, Jesus is my defining reality. And a life that says, yes, every day that becomes more true of me. Have you said a once and for all yes to Jesus? Yes. Be the center of my life. And do you every day echo that yes? Within each day, yes. Yes, I want you to be more and more the center of my life. What is God saying to you this morning? How is the Spirit nudging you, inviting you, convicting you? What is he asking of you? And how would he have you respond to him? We're going to close by singing the gorgeous hymn, Be Thou My Vision. And I invite our worship team to come on up. But as they do that, I just want you to notice one thing. How many times have we sung this phrase, not be all else to me, save that thou art, and not even really stop to think about what that means? What does that even mean? Well, not is a word that means nothing, and save in this context means accept. So what this is saying is, let nothing else be all else to me but you. Or another way to put it, Jesus, let everything else be as nothing to me in order that you might be everything to me. Let everything else be as nothing to me, Lord, so that you might be everything to me. Let everything else be as nothing to me, Lord, that you might be everything.